0: There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature.
1: Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown?
2: Do it! One, two, three, four!
0: Over three decades after their breakup, the love story and the songs of
1: Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham remain captivating. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim Deergodis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Fleetwood Mac guitarist Lindsey Buckingham shares his memories and his candid thoughts about the band. And I take a trip to the desert island. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
1: Greg, I have to tell you, Apple is worrying a little bit about the government (laughs) right now. The Federal Justice Department is seeking oversight of the iTunes Store and Apple's App Store. This is coming on the heels of a court ruling last month that said Apple conspired with five major U.S. book publishers to control the prices of e-books. Now the government would like more regulation, more oversight of what Apple is selling through the iTunes Store. That would include ebooks, TV shows, and most importantly for us. Music, You know, there has been a lot of negotiating between Apple and the major labels or the old corporate structure for selling music as it still exists, most recently for iTunes Radio. How exactly this will affect uh, the pricing of music sold via the iTunes store remains to be seen, but Apple is not looking forward to this. The quote the company put out there was that this is a draconian and punitive intrusion into Apple's business, wildly out of proportion to any adjudicated role. Wrongdoing or potential harm Don't you to Sound Opinions, and that is a new tune from some old favorites, Fleetwood Mac, a song called Without You from the band's new extended play EP. But Greg, you know, it's really an old song in a way, because it's one that Stevie Nicks wrote with our guest this week, Lindsey Buckingham, when the two were just a duo in the early 70s. Buckingham, Nicks. It's an idealistic take on their relationship at the time, written at the height of that romance, and it's quite a contrast to the Fleetwood Mac material the world would come to love. Buckingham and Nix joined Fleetwood Mac in 1974, and along with another couple that would break up in the same year, Christine and John McVie, they turned Private Turmoil into one of the best-selling and most celebrated releases of all time, Rumors, that 1977 blockbuster. This successful incarnation of Fleetwood Mac and its drug and romance-fueled dramas would continue until Buckingham left the group in 1987. But they began playing and touring together again in 1996. And Mr. Cott, as you noted, after their most recent Chicago show, it's still all about that couple, Buckingham and Nix. You had a great line in your Tribune review, the Jay-Z and Beyonce of the 70s. Lindsey Buckingham has also released a number of solo albums, including 2011 Seeds We Sow, which we gave a hearty endorsement to when we reviewed it on the show. But none of his solo work has reached the commercial heights of the band's records. He visited our Sound Opinion studios during a stop on Fleetwood Mac's tour. I was out of town, but he was kind enough to indulge all of your burning Fleetwood Mac questions, beginning with why he and Stevie joined the band.
3: I think we were somewhat disillusioned by the arc that the the Buckingham Nicks album had taken and we're getting an education into the politics of of record companies and you know we didn't sort of grasp the idea that something might be good on on an artistic level and yet not succeed commercially you know those two were not mutually exclusive in our minds at that time so I think we were coming to terms with who we were as, as artists at that point. Speaking for myself, you know, I was uh, a guitarist who had been very able to integrate the style that I had to offer into the music that Stevie and I were doing. the time that Mick Fleetwood made the offer, we were in the process of coming up with new material. We had been working in the smaller studio at the now legendary Sound City. Mm-hmm. I happened to walk over to Studio A to see what was going on over there and taking a break on, on what we were doing. And I ran into this very tall gentleman who was grooving to a song called Frozen Love that was on the Buckingham Nicks album and he was just really into my guitar solo. A couple of weeks later, we got a call. Or, to, Actually, Mick wanted me to join. They were looking for a lead guitarist because Bob Welch, who had been in that group, unbeknownst to Mick at the time when I was first introduced to him, had decided to leave. And I kind of said, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but something like, well, you got to take my girlfriend, too. <laughs> And I think he said, well, I'll get back to you on that. And and I guess they all talked about it and decided that that was going to work. As far as our perception of Fleetwood Mac goes, you know, I was very aware of the Peter Green era and was a huge fan of then play on that that album.
2: I can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give the answers that you want me to
3: I was less familiar with all the different incarnations that had existed in between. Uh, and there had been many, probably as many as there ever has been in a group. And it's really a comment on the business, I think, and where where it was then and where, what it has come to that a guy like Mo Austin, who was the president of Warner Brothers at that time, just let them languish on the label and go through all of these incarnations that were pretty much non-sequiturs from album to album with the notion that there was something in essence good about this group even though they weren't making money for the label and we're just going to see what happens and allow the ferment and see what happens at the other end. And of course something really magnificent and, and huge commercially did happen. In today's environment, you know, with the large labels, you know, Fleetwood Mac would have been off two albums down the line after Peter Green. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we were thrown into something that we had no idea how to even think about it. For me, it was a, a big exercise in adaptation because I had to tool my guitar playing down. I had to pare it down in order to fit in with a pre-existing sound with John's bass playing and Christine McVie's keyboards. I had to find what I did have to offer, which ended up being not just as a writer, but as a producer.
0: Well, and also they had to be pretty thrilled because I understand that Monday Morning and Rhiannon were already kind of in the works, if not done. Yeah, so afraid.
3: <laughs> yeah, pretty much all of, of Stevie's and my material had been recorded in a, in demo form, at least.
2: She rings like a bell through the night Wouldn't you love to love her? She rules
0: mentioned the guitar style. Very unique, and I think in some ways underrated because, as you said, there you, you had to do some integrating into what Fleetwood Mac was already was and, and, and sort of build it into the fabric of what was there. You have a unique style, and it wasn't necessarily rock and roll influences that were informing it, right?
3: Not really. Well, I mean, early rock and roll influences, Scotty Moore and, and people who were playing in the 50s and early 60s but then after that it was folk the folk music and the 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 Travis pick and and even some banjo playing for a while definitely informed the whole notion of me playing guitar without a pick But yes, rock and roll, the the guitar as it became used later on as more of a lead instrument was not really my orientation. Uh, and I think probably my mentality about guitar, the people that I admired, whether it was someone like Scotty Moore or, say, Chet Atkins, who was a studio player, these are people who made the records, in quotations, much better by virtue of their orchestral approach to bowing up the, the, the song and contributing to the song on, on a production level without necessarily uh, chewing up the scenery per se. I think you're you're probably right. There is a, a certain level of. I mean, I don't know if it's under being underrated or or. But people don't always pick out those parts and appreciate what they are. You know, they they hear the whole. That's that's the point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, I mean, there has been some level of for me of feeling like people haven't quite gotten that. But, you know, those are the choices you make. And if that's a trade-off you've got to make, then so be it. And you, de
0: facto, were producer of that group and I know had a huge role in the arrangements, also dealing with two other very strong songwriters with Stevie Nicks and and Christine McPhee. Was it satisfying to you as an artist to sort of a behind-the-scenes guy with the production, the arranging, integrating the guitar parts rather than being the soloist out front? Was that satisfying to you artistically?
3: We made our choice to be in the band. The decision to stay in the band was kind of made for us because right away we became successful. So by the time we went to Sausalito to begin recording Rumors, I mean we were dysfunctional as a group of people. Mm -hmm. But we were also having to compartmentalize everything in order to follow our, our destiny and that destiny seemed to loom quite large. You know, having been put in that position where things just clicked right away, again, you just have to concentrate on what you are, how you define yourself within the group, how you can contribute the most within the group. And really, you know, you look at that that five sum you could on paper you could say it wasn't really a group of people that even belonged in the <laughs> same group. Yeah. But you know, it was it was the the fact that it was so disparate that, that made it so magical, I think. Mm-hmm. There were so many other things that entered into it, having broken up with Stevie and having to make the choice to do for her in the right way. Mhm having to be around her all the time without any distance to get the kind of closure you would normally get if you were a couple that had broken up uh having her sort of become more the figurehead of the group in terms of of what people were latching on to so yeah there were challenges i mean i'm still trying to become an adult right <laughs> but you know <laughs> we we you try to make adult decisions
1: Talk more about adult decisions, breakups, and makeups with Lindsay Buckingham after a quick break here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. Whoa. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and you've been listening to his conversation with Fleetwood Mac guitarist, Lindsey Buckingham. I was out of town for this one, but Greg happily took the reins. Now, people are familiar with the soap opera behind Fleetwood Mac as much as they are with the music. In some part, that's because it's still hard to understand how someone like Lindsay could remain in a band with his ex-girlfriend, Stevie Nicks, let alone perform songs about their breakup. And they're still performing those songs 37 years later. Talk about a head trip. Let's return to the conversation there with the making of that breakup album, Rumors, in 1977.
0: It seems like an incredibly untenable situation. I mean, I look back on I interviewed Mick Fleetwood. 20 years ago when his uh, book came out and he, you know he said something like we're trying to let go personally and cling to each other professionally at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I wonder have you ever reflected on the fact that how much did the professional intrude on the personal for you? You know, obviously you and Stevie were were a couple going in and after that album was made clearly you were not. Did you think that the professional side of what was happening with Fleetwood Mac influenced your ability to have a relationship with somebody in your own band. I mean, people always say it's really hard to work with your significant other in a professional situation. Was that was that true, you think, with you and Stevie?
3: Well, I think it was true for a couple of reasons. One was that if we had hypothetically remained as Buckingham Knicks, th- there was a parallel thing that we had. I think our set of reference points as Buckingham Nicks was far more similar than it became in Fleetwood Mac. So who's to say that that wouldn't have translated to an easier road for us to stay together as a couple? Another thing really is that Christine McVie, when we joined the band, was already on the outs with John McVie. They were married when we joined. And – if Stevie had any of those thoughts, you know, having another woman to <laughs> corroborate with, I think just it either enlarged the the sense of that being the road or it certainly uh accelerated it one of the two and then the last thing is again that that Stevie, at some point after the first album, her persona on stage was latched onto, and she was in a sense called away by a, a larger world and separated on her own from, from me. Mm-hmm. So you've got those three things.
0: I want to ask you one other question about the soap opera and then get back to the music. <laughs> and again, because Mick brought it up, uh, Mick Fleetwood, he said that he seriously considered giving the band's cocaine supplier a credit on the Rumors album. And, <laughs> and didn't until because the dealer died. Okay. But I'm just curious about your feelings about, I mean, the 70s, cocaine, it's a cliche. But did that do some damage with that group in terms of just its ability to hold things together during that period? Because you hear all sorts of stories about it. What's your take on it now?
3: You know, it's sort of hard to be objective about it. It was never my thing as much as it was other people's in the band. I would certainly partake from time to time because it was there and— Quite honestly, Mick wouldn't let me leave and go home and go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I would actually walk out to the parking lot and he'd come and drag me back in. <laughs> but you know I'm not so sure that it did a lot of damage. You know you have to look at it in the context of that subculture which was so widespread during that time. I don't think that it necessarily informed any of the personal dynamics that much. The writing on the wall was already there for those. The only thing I'd say about it is that because it was this subculture that existed, I think we all had this illusion that it was something we we had to engage in in order to be an artist or in order to be creative in retrospect, that turned out to be just a bunch of garbage, you know, because you you function much better without that. To be truthful about it, it undermined some people's personal lives outside of the band more than it did within live and learn, I guess, right? Yeah,
0: well, you know, and people would look back on it and say, well, it was all absolutely justified because they made a great album it sold it A zillion copies because I think there's so many layers to that album, which is why it has so much resonance. And then you look at the songs and what are they talking about? Well, it's almost like the band members are talking to each other through Mm -hmm. these songs. And obviously that's a subtext, I think, not even a subtext, I think you and Stevie bring it out on this tour where you sort of, you know, there's two people talking to each other through these songs. Mm -hmm. And I think you probably recognize that now. But at the time, were you aware that a song like Landslide, I'm going to haunt you, you know, from my grave kind of thing and and go your own way, this very angry kind of kiss-off song, you know, that... Were you aware at the time that you were writing to each other?
3: Well, you know, I think on some level we were, but I think we also thought of it as just the fuel for writing and that, you know, all subject matter comes from somewhere and that there was... uh, I think we thought of those songs as being more generic on that level than how they were perceived. It really was as much of a surprise to us in some ways when rumors became as successful as it did but at some point you could look back on that and say well okay the the appeal <laughs> was not just musical it was because we were bringing out the voyeur in the listener <laughs> and and on some level the listener was investing in this whole thing that was going on. And it was pretty unique having two couples that were going through personal turmoil and yet were somehow rising above that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there were, I, I think it became as clear to us later as it began to define itself from the outside. And the other thing about rumors was that there was, I think anyway, there was this subtext that people don't really – get a handle on but it, it was something that was appealing was that there was a heroicism to it because we truly were as I said having to put aside some of the things that probably a shrink would have said were best attended to <laughs> and more presently uh, and yet we were compartmentalizing all these things in order to Concentrate on this idea of this destiny being waiting for us that we had to follow.
0: I can only imagine the discipline that that required, to be able to work on a song, say, by Stevie, and you might have had this blowout argument, you know, a day before or something like that, and now you're working on a song together.
3: In the moment, you you can summon up surprising things that you might not, on paper, think are there about yourself. And, you know, on a given day, on a given song, this is what we're going to do... It's really down to the minutiae of, of, of putting it all together. And you've just got to keep your eye on the ball. Don't you if he's stay? Don't you
0: if he's You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. We're talking with Lindsay Buckingham coming into Tusk, and you're doing a number of songs on the current tour from that album, which mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear, because I think that's the stepchild of the Fleetwood Mac run of the late <laughs> 70s, obviously. But to me, it reminds me a little bit of, of sort of a white album mentality, the Beatles white album, where so many songs, so many songwriters, so many contributions, the only possible way we can address all these different constituencies is to do a double album, sprawling record, that maybe... Well, if we just defined it down to 12 songs, we probably might have made a better, quote-unquote, or a more commercial record, but instead we had this sprawling record that at the time wasn't really understood that well, I think has had a reputation, I think, with subsequent generations of musicians who have looked back on that say, that's the album from that era that really jumps out at me as their best work. What's your take on that record?
3: Well, you know... That was uh, a record I have to either take uh, the credit or the, or the blame for, depending <laughs> on how you look at it. I was in a sort of post-rumors environment. I, I think I was pretty ambivalent about being in that sort of Michael Jackson land place, you know, where, where the success— it, because really, at some point, I, I, I think— detached from the music or anything that was important and became about the success and the phenomenon surrounding that. And I think I was someone who was very ambivalent, and that's a nice word, about the idea of, of following that formula strictly for trying to repeat a commercial success. I said to the band, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work at home for a while. And that was the beginning of, of how I started doing solo albums mm-hmm. later. And you end up with these things that are certainly far more to the left, but they're also just things that would never happen w- with the four musicians playing. Most of this stuff was not even that commercial. It was pretty out there. <laughs> and the rest of the band was like, eh. And then they started to get more into it. And at the end of making that album, everyone was under the spell of what that was aspiring to be. That spell held for a while and it was only when rumors – I mean when Tusk did not sell 16 million albums that the band's spell that they were under broke. Then it was a kind of a – well, Lindsay, we're we're not going to do that again. (laughs) And that was fair enough and I have to say too probably had the band not put down that limitation about what we were going to do subsequent to Tusk, I probably never would have felt the need to make solo albums because Mm -hmm. that was the only outlet I had for doing that post-Tusk. But clearly making that choice and subverting that formulaic idea – that run it into the ground idea was yeah. was uh the beginning of how I still think, and I'm happy about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am the resident troublemaker in the band, <laughs> and uh I think over time that's become more, not only more appreciated by listeners as you mentioned, you know younger generations who to whom Tusk makes complete sense mm-hmm. but it but it's made more sense to the band as well, you know
0: oh it's interesting. My question to you is, I guess 87 was the big blowout, and it seemed like it came to the, a head where it just it, it couldn't go on. But do you feel like may, maybe I should have just pulled the plug after
3: Tusk? Well, mm, well that, that's an interesting idea. I've never even thought of that. I, I don't know what would have happened. I think it seems premature to me. But there is a case to be made for that on an artistic level because clearly after Tusk, I mean, first of all, you have to look at rumors and and say, okay, if we had made rumors too, what are the odds it would have sold the same number of albums? I'm sure it wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. That was a moment in time that you were not going to be able to repeat no matter what. There were a lot of reasons why that album did as well as it did. So, but, you know, beyond that, when you get to the mindset collectively of the group after Tusk, It was kind of like there was nowhere to go. I mean I felt as a producer like I had broadened my vistas in a way that I I felt sort of like I was treading water in the studio and not that there weren't some – I mean Gypsy, which is from Mirage, is probably the favorite thing I ever did for Stevie. So – Not like Wonderful Things didn't come out of that. But collectively sure. as an album, it's hard to go back. There was this kind of artifice that was on a political level that seemed to want us to do that from – not from the record company so much, although there probably was that too. But from within the group because they they were thinking in terms of economics and they were thinking in terms of 16 versus 3 or 4, whatever it sold and <laughs> – Hmm, what do we do here? And of course, you know, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. So yes, I mean, maybe there there would have been some wisdom to do that. But I think on a loyalty level, it didn't feel right. When I did leave in 1987, it was for other reasons. It was because the band really had, you know, the lifestyle of which you referred to earlier had gotten so dysfunctional. And we made Tango in the Night for the most part up at my house in my studio that I had there. I think out of however many months or close to a year that we worked on that, we probably saw Stevie for a few weeks. Mick was living in a trailer out in front of my house. <laughs> um and it was just madness. It was madness. And at that point, you know, I mean when I did leave, it was it was not for any intellectual or any reason that was too precious, it was be, uh, more because I felt I really needed. It was a survival move, you mm-hmm. know. I, I have to get out of this and get my feet back on the ground.
0: Mm-hmm. We're talking with Lindsey Buckingham here on Sound Opinions. Tango in the Night had Big Love, mm-hmm. uh, which to me on the current tour is the moment. You know, well, it, for it's me too. Amazing stuff. It's almost scary, Lindsay, the uh, level of intensity that you get when you perform that song. I think I described it as sort of an exorcism the last time. You you, you talked about a theme of redemption running through the song, and all I saw was just this cathartic kind of thing going on. What's going through your head when you're performing the song now? I don't know. I mean... uh...
3: I kind of have to keep my eye on the ball on that one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I don't think that the performance itself represents any sort of redemption per se. I I just think when I look at how the song has evolved from being an ensemble piece Mm -hmm. to being something that represents an important part of what I want to express as a guitarist, and quite frankly, probably represents... One of the areas in which people can appreciate me as a guitarist uh, where the, they can't as much when I'm doing ensemble work, you mm-hmm. know. It's just me. I just feel so much like myself. And I think on some level there's there's always been a, a visceral side to what I do that's slightly over the top. I mean, I, I'm aware of that, you know, maybe even slightly... In need of approval from the audience, you know? Maybe there's something appropriate to my history in the band that would uh, be a clue there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, it even before we joined Fleetwood Mac, there was something visceral that that I felt, and something tribal almost, that, that rock and roll did represent, you know? Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, for somebody who was always enamored of music and is old enough to have had an older brother bring home Heartbreak Hotel and have that be the incredible alternative to Patty Page. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that was a profound thing. And that was the meaning of rock and roll at that time. And, mm-hmm. and that's always been a part of me. And I guess you could say a song like Big Love really embodies that. Mm-hmm. You
0: know. Now you close the show. Uh, or had been when I saw it, with Say Goodbye. Still doing it. It is kind of a full circle kind of moment. You do feel like there's the the, the dreaded C word comes out. We got the closure going on here. Uh Uh, It's been a long journey with you and the band and also with you and Stevie, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it's an ongoing story. People seem to be taken with that story. You know, you could almost see the show as kind of a play.
3: Well, you know, we we tend to tour every three years, something like that. And you would think that somehow our dynamic would have kind of flatlined by now. But uh, if I go back two tours to maybe... 2004. What was interesting about that tour was there was a lot of animosity still between Stevie and me. We were coming off making the Say You Will album and there had been some tension in the studio. Then you cut to 2008 or 2009 or whenever that was and that had been neutralized but somehow there was kind of a void in terms of Stevie's and my dynamic and now you you cut to this tour and it's gone the other way. And so now somehow we are acknowledging the fact that we've known each other since we were 16, 17 years old and wondering what's it all about, you know, (laughs) and and still wondering, maybe um, wondering where it's going. But yes, I mean, it is cyclical. And uh, a song like Say Goodbye, which was written close to 10 years ago, you know, after my children were born and I was sort of able to take an overview of of some of that it's the capsule of what seems to be running a thread running through the show you know where Stevie and I are able to acknowledge some of this from time to time and and uh, and I think it it raises the the whole level of the performances and certainly the subtext of, of what has gone on for the last 30-some-odd years, you know.
0: Has it fostered any sort of dialogue off the stage at all, or is it still kind of an artistic thing?
3: Well, I mean, we are having dialogues about trying to figure out what we're doing beyond this because, there, you know, we have this EP right now, which is four songs. My eyes were consumed by the silence thinking about 2014. Could we go in and finish an album? Could we string a couple of years together for a change? (laughs) Uh That would be novel. So we're talking on that level. And I guess sort of behind that is everything else, because I don't think you get to that point without having there be some letting down of, of some of that. But, you know, also... I think there are times where when it is difficult for Stevie and me to separate the reality from the role. Because back in the 70 in the late 70s, clearly it was the reality. I mean, I've been married for a long time. I have three beautiful children, best thing that ever happened to me relatively late and mm-hmm. which was I wouldn't have been ready for it earlier. So, you know, that's that's a reality now and yet here I am still writing songs to Stevie and that has now become the role I'm playing. So there I think it, you know, we both understand that, that there's been a separation and that at some point the reality sort of slipped into being the role.
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. We're talking with Lindsay Buckingham. And, uh, Lindsay, I just want to say it's been great to have you as a guest on Sound Opinions. as
3: always, I love talking to you, Greg.
1: Now we want to hear from you. What are your memories of Fleetwood Mac? Have you seen the band in recent years? Share your thoughts on that or anything under the rock and roll sun at 888-859-1800 coming up on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX I'll drop a coin in the desert island jukebox
2: hello tell you little buddy, this whole island was is bewitched. Just a castaway, I lost the sea. Oh. Now I'm Sandy, on my own. Sandy, far from home. Look, oh, come on. You remember, we were shipwrecked together. Sandy, I'm so far from home. Sandy, yeah, i my own. Sandy, you gotta live.
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. As often as possible on this show, we like to take a trip to the desert island and drop a quarter in the desert island jukebox to play a song we cannot live without. Jim, I see you're climbing into the Sound Opinions helicopter as we speak to fly off to the island. What do you got for
1: us this week? Well, Greg, I want to pay homage to another pioneering rock journalist and critic who recently died, Mick Farron, a legend on the British music scene since the mid-60s, since the summer of love and the psychedelic explosion. Mick was a 100% character. Let me tell you, I got to know him and interview him a few years back. In the mid-60s, he started out as an underground journalist writing for newspapers like the International Times. Throughout the 70s, he was one of the star correspondents, rock critics, and journalists at the New Musical Express when it was the music publication for the rest of the world, Cream Magazine being the one in the U.S. He was writing beside people like Nick Kent and really making up the rules of this as he went along. One of the most inspiring things he ever said to me was that I had to go out and read Oscar Wilde's famous essay, The Critic as Artist, because he believed that writing passionately and with innovation about music was as much of an art as making music yourself. Now, making music also was something he did. The Deviants are a famous band in the UK that ranks somewhere between the Fugs and Hawkwind. (laughs) The Fugs, in terms of musical primitivism, coupled with with a real literary desire, and Hawkwind with that weird psychedelic thing. They would later have a revival in the 70s and be appreciated as predecessors of the punk movement, even though they were stone-cold hippies, just because they had the, the daring with no talent to get, up on stage and make an awesome noise. And Farron was still making an awesome noise when he died live on stage, performing with the Deviants at the age of 69. Now Farron is one of those rare rock critics who left this business that you and me have devoted our lives to and went into a second successful act as a wonderful science fiction novelist. You know, I I don't read a lot of SF, but I have to say that his 1999 book Jim Morrison's Adventures in the Afterlife is one of the weirdest, most innovative, and most laugh-out-loud funny books I ever have read. We wanted to pay homage to Mick Farren on his passing. He's perhaps not as well known in this country as he should be, and he should be remembered. So I'm going to play a track from the classic deviance debut album now this is 1967 it could be 1977 the summer of hate and punk rock it is just chaotic it's insane it's noisy that debut album came out in 67 as i said it was called patoof p-t-o-o-f-f exclamation point with a real comic book style cover kind of lichtenstein like here is mick farron on vocals a song called garbage by the Deviants from 1967 on sound opinions we got
2: garbage we got garbage we got garbage we got garbage won't you buy do, 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 buy some garbage do, 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 won't you
0: That is Mick Farron and the Deviants with Garbage, Jim DeRogatis' Desert Island jukebox pick for this week. Next week, we're going to transform into the Rock Doctors, and we're going to prescribe some musical medicine for a martial arts instructor.
1: Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions was produced by Robin Lin, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. Megan Murphy is our intern. And a last musical tidbit before we leave you, Bob Dylan is painting again. <laughs>
2: Your phone. Pick up I know that at home.
1: On sound opinions, everyone's a critic So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: New messages.
1: Yeah,
0: my name is Chris. I'm listening to the episode about instrumental music. My favorite instrumental song ever is I Set My Face to the Hillside by Tortoise.
2: Hi, this is Joan calling from Fairfield, Connecticut. My one of my all time favorite instrumentals is Bay the Fleck and the Fleck Tone, a big country. It just sounds like America.
3: This is Dan from Chillicothe, Missouri. As far as my pitch for inclusion in the show, uh, Maggot Brain by Parliament Funkadelic would need to be in there. The the fantastic guitar solo by Eddie Hazel, an amazing piece of music that holds your attention all the way through and and, uh, one of my favorites. Thanks.
0: My name is uh, Totan Amir. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I would like to
1: comment about the show, The Best Instrumentals. I'm just shaking my head in disbelief. Talking about Chicago, your own town. No mentioning of any post rock, Nothing on Domino Records. Nothing on Jack City. One of the things that hurts me the most. No mention of Mogwai. years I've been hearing you guys talking about Brian Eno. This is the show that Brian Eno is supposed to actually be talked
0: about. I don't understand. Have a good day. Hey guys, this is Jason in Chicago. I just finished listening to your episode on instrumentals and unsurprisingly there are some that I think
2: could have and should have been included. The first, I'm really kind of amazed you guys didn't include it because
0: you seem to include something by him in just about every episode. Brian Hino's Music for Airports. Study or, or chill out to and the other is tragic animal stories the album by Barry Black uh, just a series of instrumentals all based on animals and you just really can't beat it for titles um, with titles like uh, when sharks smell blood Wooling elephants derelict vultures my favorite track of that album is probably Chimps. all right
2: thanks guys take care